It's Monday, December 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. George Herbert Walker Bush, 41st President of the United States, passed away over the weekend. He was 94. He lived an extraordinary life. Aviator in World War II, member of Congress, United Nations Ambassador, Director of the CIA, Vice President and President. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to talk about his presidency and his final days. Next, the average life expectancy for people in the United States peaked in 2014 and has been dropping ever since. The average baby born in the United States in 2017 is expected to live 78.6 years, a slight drop from 78.7 years. While that drop may not seem significant, it is important to look at what is contributing to the decline. Dan Vergano, science reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for what is driving the numbers. Finally, U.S. government scientists will be testing an experimental birth control method for men. It's not a pill or a new condom. It is a gel that is applied to the back and shoulders. The gel is made to halt production of sperm while maintaining the energy and libido benefits of testosterone. Michelle Faye Cortez, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us to talk about the new male birth control. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The president had a very gentle and peaceful passing. One of his aides said, uh, Mr. President, Secretary Baker's here. Well, he he perked up. He opened his eyes. He looked at me. He says, hey, Bake, he said, where are we going? So he kept his spirit and he kept his sense of humor right till the very end. He is going to be and was a very consequential one-term president, far and away the best one-term president we've ever had. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. It was Friday night that we learned that the 41st president of the United States, George H.W. Bush, had passed away. He led a remarkable life. He was an aviator in World War II, a member of Congress, ambassador to the United Nations, director of the CIA, vice president, and then ultimately president. He led the world through some tumultuous times, uh, the end of the Cold War, and ushered in new taxes and kind of setting up the 90s for a big economic boom. We'll get into all that in a moment. Let's talk a little bit, though, about his final day. I was reading this story in the Washington Post. They organized calls between him and his family. James Baker, who was Secretary of State for some time, was there. It made me sad. It was just a really beautiful way to go. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. The Post had a beautiful telling of former President George H.W. Bush's last day. We know he has been sick for some time wheelchair bound. His wife died earlier this year, and we knew that would probably take a real emotional toll on him. She was his first love, the only woman he ever kissed. And so we know that on his last day, James Baker, his former Secretary of State, his very good friend, visited him in the morning, and he appeared to be doing better. They said he had not eaten for a few days. He was able to eat breakfast. He was able to sit up. But as the day went on, and Baker ultimately visited him three times in the day, his condition dwindled. At the end of the day, around dinner time, the staff began arranging for him to make phone calls with all of his adult children, calling each one of them, although one was present there in Houston. And his last words, the last thing he said was to his son, his eldest son, former President George W. Bush, telling him that he loved him. And then less than an hour later, he died. Very sweet retelling of his final day. James Baker, who lived close by, checked in on him throughout the day. And at one point, the former president told him, Bake, where are we going? And he said, Hefe, we're going to 
to heaven. And then he responded, that's where I want to go. It was just a great way to go to be able to talk to loved ones and be there with friends and family. And, and it was just, I'm happy for them that he was able to go that way. You know, he had remarked in an interview recently that he had spent most of his life afraid of dying. If you remember, he was a pilot in World War II. His life was on the line quite a number of times. But recently, especially since the passing of his wife, he'd begun to look forward to death, that he thought that it was something he was prepared for. And at 94 years old, he had lived a long life. So it did seem to be one of the most peaceful passes that has that has happened recently. Let's talk about his presidency and some of the important things that happened during that time. One of the biggest moments was when he organized the international military coalition that liberated Kuwait from Iraq. They were invading and it, in quick fashion almost, he was able to get that taken care of. Tell us a little bit about his presidency. One of his largest legislative accomplishments was signing the Americans with Disability Act. Right. There might not be another piece of legislation with his name on it that has affected so many people and continues to affect so many people. If you just think about the number of times you've walked someone use a ramp to get into a building that was thanks to George H.W. Bush signing that piece of legislation. And that's just a small piece of it. You know, we talk about employment, we talk about other basic access to services that that law provided. You mentioned what is often known as Desert Storm, which was the brief conflict that he oversaw. And then he later credited with helping mend some of the wounds the nation had after Vietnam, some of the hostility towards America's service members that this was an effective and successful mission, that it was over quickly, and that the American people were able to see something resolved uh, with speed that, that really sort of calmed the nation. By all accounts, President Bush was very good at the foreign policy, organizing with other countries, but domestically, he didn't fare so well. Uh, he signed in some new spending cuts and tax revenue increases, which helped set up the 90s for a big boom. But at the time, the party, the, the Republican party did not like that at all. And a lot of people say that's what contributed to him being a one-term president. That's right. He very famously said when he was running for president, no new taxes read my lips. And that is a line that has held a place in our culture because he ultimately did raise taxes a few years later. And it was that decision that many say cost him re-election. He had a, a strong primary challenge from uh, Pat Buchanan, who was highly critical of his decision to raise taxes whittled away and depressed some of his support and ultimately lost to a young and energetic governor from Arkansas, Bill Clinton. But that was what the domestic problems were largely what kept him from getting another term. What's next for him? His casket is going to be traveling through the country and a final resting place for him as well. We can talk about legacies in two different ways in the short term and the long term. Uh, you talk about the things he accomplished in the long term, his nonprofit, A Thousand Points of Light, which encouraged volunteering in the United States, something that was highly praised in his death and in his life will live on for a long time. And in the short term, the nation will be mourning the loss of a former president. His body, his remains will be moved from Houston, Texas, where he lived and flown to, to the Capitol, to Washington, D.C. There will be a ceremony on Monday when he arrives in Washington. He will lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda, where the public will have the ability to come in and pay their respects. And then on Wednesday morning, he will be taken from the United States Capitol to the National 
Cathedral, where the funeral service in Washington will take place. They'll then be flown back to Houston. There will be another funeral service of sorts in St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston. He will lie in state for visitation there. And then on Thursday, his body will be taken via train to his presidential library, which is in College Station, where Texas A&M's campus is, where he will be buried on the grounds of his library. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. About 2.8 million people die every year in the U.S., and it's mostly of heart disease and cancer. But we've got this overdose crisis that's hitting people hard, and, and suicides are going up. And, and those are the two things that the CDC really you know, wanted to point out. Opioid crisis is a national public health emergency, and this is why. Joining us now is Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. The average life expectancy for people in the United States has dropped a little bit to 78.6 years. It's a tiny drop from last year where it was at 78.7 years. And that doesn't seem like a big drop at all. But what really is important is looking at what causes this, what's driving those numbers. So what do we know about that? The first thing is that it's remarkable that in the United States of America, life expectancy is dropping. The last century has been this long record of it increasing, except for a few bad times like World War One, World War Two, smoking really being a problem in the 60s. So it's just remarkable that it's dropping at all. And it has been going down since 2014. So the first thing to say is like, you know, it peaked three years ago, four years ago. So that's pretty surprising where every other developer country. Life expectancy just keeps going up and ours is starting to fall away. Top of the line problems here are the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis, which killed about 70,000 people in 2017 and suicides going up. So about 2.8 million people die every year in the U.S. and it's mostly of heart disease and cancer. But we've got this overdose crisis that's hitting people hard and, and suicides are going up. And, and those are the two things that the CDC really you know, wanted to point out. Opioid crisis is a national public health emergency and this is why. And the other 10 leading causes of death, heart disease and cancer still remain the top. There was a slight decrease in the cancer death rate, but increases in all the other ones of stroke, diabetes, Alzheimer's, flu and pneumonia chronic right. lower was, respiratory diseases, all these things increased slightly. That's all part of a long-term trend, these sort of diseases, particularly things like diabetes, killing people. And, you know, sociologists are saying that this has been going on since the 1980s and has really accelerated since a decade ago. They started to notice in low-income people and low education, people with less than a high school education, that these rates were going up for them. And, and so this has all been accelerating since then. And, and now the, ice, the opioid crisis has come along, as well as suicides getting worse, particularly in rural areas for suicide. And it's just all cresting and life expectancy is going down here. States that have cut health care, education, all these costs, they've been hit hardest by these things where New York, places like that, where they're putting a lot of effort into it, have a better life expectancy. In the article, right. somebody was quoted saying New York now has a life expectancy like Denmark. And Mississippi has one like Romania. Yeah, you see states like Minnesota and New York where they've kept basically it's income support, things like in earned income tax credit and so forth. Those are the big things, even more than health care. Those look really good. Life expectancy just keeps getting up. And in places where we don't invest in the population or de-invest, we cut education. We don't give people tax credits for working. We don't allow localities to post the calorie count on the menu at the McDonald's. Those places, you know, Mississippi is always the poster boy for this, but other ones are sort of representative of that. Life expectancy 
consistency keeps going down. So it's not it's not really a mystery what's happening there. It's it's this trend of like two countries, you know, one often urban or cosmopolitan and things becoming more like a, a Europe and, you know, one that's not and things are going away Romania. It's a really worrying thing, but, you know, it, it's kind of clear from the data what's happening. You know, these numbers do reflect the nation's growing and aging populations, but yep. deaths in younger groups, which are these middle-aged people, these are the ones that have the bigger impacts on these calculations of life expectancy. And we're talking about right. opioid crisis and things like that. The death rates from fentanyl specifically and its analogs, those are the ones that are driving this numbers up. I think it rose 45% from 2016 to 2017. What's remarkable is heroin deaths leveled off and so uh, have prescription pill deaths for opioids. And so it's really the fentanyl that's taken over. It might kill 30,000 people instead of more than 20,000 this year compared to last. It is polluting the illicit drug market for heroin on the East Coast, east of the Mississippi, and increasingly is being found in cocaine and turning up in other drugs like meth and so forth. And, you know, those people who aren't even opioid users are particularly vulnerable. So you're seeing people in cities who might be using cocaine and heroin mixed together are getting fentanyl instead, and those are the people who are overdosing now. That's not the country where you've had the prescription pill and the heroin epidemic hitting hardest. Well, the one thing in this data that's really big for fentanyl, of course, is Ohio had this terrible carfentanyl thing that killed hundreds of people in the middle of 2017 and led to a huge spike. Thankfully, that seems to have gone away. That's the worst analog out there in terms Mm. of fentanyl. Other stuff that came out of the report, they said that gun deaths rose for a third year in a row to nearly 40,000 about a thousand more than in 2016. And speaking about suicides, you know, most gun deaths are suicides. When they put out reports like this, obviously they're shining light on what's driving the changes and the trends. Do they also put out any recommendations, things that we need to work on? I I know some of them are kind of obvious because if it's opioids and suicide, we need to put more attention on there. But do they make any type of recommendations? They do not. These are yearly National Center for Health Statistics data briefs that they put out every year about this time. And they are just numbers. They just slice and dice them, you know, six different ways, but they do not make policy recommendations. They just say, geez, it's getting worse for this population. And it should be a wake-up call to policymakers, lawmakers around the country. If these things are driving it, we need to put a little more attention to it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You wonder if they're really paying attention to what works and what doesn't work. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. It would be the first hormonal reversible birth control for men. And it is something that you just put on your back every single day, just once a day. And it lowers the production of sperm in the testes. It only works when you're putting it on and it stops working when you stop using it. Joining us now is Michelle Faye Cortez, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. There might be a new male birth control method that is getting closer to reality. Right now, the big methods are condoms or having a vasectomy. And uh, we all know that there's uh, plenty of options on the female side, uh, with the pill being the foremost one with its effectiveness. But the government is starting a new clinical trial for men that would be using a gel. What do we know about this? It's actually really interesting. If it gets approved, if they get it all the way through, it would be the first hormonal reversible birth control for men. And it is something that you just put on your back every single day, just once a day. And it lowers the 
production of sperm in the testes. It only works when you're putting it on and it stops working when you stop using it. So it would give men better control over their fertility. It would also be able to give them control if they don't want to be discussing what they're doing in terms of <laughs> control as well. So it's it's really fascinating stuff. Tell us about this gel and what it's a mix of because it seems very simple and the thought process behind it also seems very simple. It's like, why haven't you thought of this before kind of thing? Well, they have been working on it for quite a number of years, but of course, all of this research takes a very long time right. and you really need to make sure that you're getting it right when you're talking about having children, which is a pretty permanent condition. What it is is a mixture of two hormones. It's a mixture of progestin and testosterone. The progestin actually inhibits the production of testosterone in the testes. That's where sperm is produced and it requires very, very high levels of testosterone. So when you shut that down, it shuts it down in the testes so you don't have to worry about sperm production. But just as you probably are familiar with, you know, low T and there's a lot of right. treatments out there for that. If you have low levels of testosterone, that's not good for a guy. So the testosterone that's in the gel actually raises those levels in the blood, but doesn't get it high enough so that it increases it in the testes. So you get all the benefits of testosterone in your body and in your blood, but you don't get the sperm production. They say that after you stop using the gel, the production will rebound in the testes, that it shouldn't be causing any serious side effects. I just kind of imagine silly hormonal, you know, emotional imbalances in men. And so far, they've said that there is no major side effects. That is absolutely the case. And as we talked about earlier, you know, you, you have to follow all of this stuff very closely over time. And it's new. So we don't really know exactly how any of it's going to work. And we haven't gotten a lot of published research about it. So it's hard to get independent validation for a lot of this stuff. But they have done the male piece of this. So they have been giving the gel to men and then monitoring their sperm production and their side effect rates and that sort of a thing. And they haven't found any problems. The numbers there are pretty low. So certainly it's not going to cover what everyone would have. I'm sure that there's natural variation in testosterone. So if you're taking away someone who's already low, I mean, certainly that variation we're going to have to see over right. time. But that piece is they have already figured out. It does take a varying amount of time in order for the production of the sperm to fall off. So some people, a couple of weeks, they're good. Others have to go out for four months. So you need to use some other form of birth control. And then the same is when you come off of it, how quickly your fertility returns for a guy. That's something they're going to have to monitor and it might be individual for each person. But now they're actually studying couples, 420 couples. These couples are going to eventually be relying just on this gel for their birth control. So we'll see in the end. I mean, it'll be the number of babies. So that's <laughs> right. a pretty firm indication of how well it'll work. Do we know why this is a gel and not like a pill or a shot or something? I, you know, it's a weird place that it has to be applied to the back and the shoulders. You would think it'd probably be better served applied down there. Exactly. The reason why they're doing it as a gel is because it is very easy to get into your body through your skin and it forms a reservoir there as well. So it lasts a little bit longer. And you see that already, the testosterone gels that are out there that are approved, that does already exist. So they're not rebuilding technology there. That hormonal gel for men does currently exist. So that makes it easier. Yeah. The reason that they can't use a, a pill, men would be able to take a pill just like a woman, is that it clears out of your system 
system really quickly through your stomach. So you would have to be taking a lot of it and you'd have to be taking it very frequently. It matters how often you take it. You have to remember to take it every day. Let's say if it was a pill or something. I've seen that with this, it could last for about 72 hours before you need to reapply. So just in case you forget a day or something like that, that gel kind of helps out in that way at least. Exactly. That's that little bit of buildup that it gets just right under your skin. So when do these clinical trials start and how long? It's a 52-week trial, so we won't know anything on this probably for another year. It'll be longer than that. It'll probably take a year to actually enroll all the trials. They are doing it in in the U.S. They're doing it in Chile. They're doing it in Kenya. But it is quite a number of couples, 420. They need to enroll them. It's interesting because the researcher told me that they have already gotten phone calls from couples who are interested (laughs) in participating, like that they are struggling to handle their family planning and they'd like to try something like this. Michelle Faye Cortez, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.